0: Chapter Seven of The Hand in the Dark. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Hand in the Dark by Arthur J. Rees. Chapter Seven. It was the morning after the murder, and five men were seated in the Moat House Library one of them attracted instant attention by reason of his overpowering personality he was a giant in stature and build with a massive head a large red face from which a pair of little bloodshot eyes stared out truculently and a bull neck which was several shades deeper in colour than his face he was superintendent merrington a noted executive officer of new scotland yard whose handling of the most important spy case tried in london during the war had brought forth from a gracious sovereign the inevitable order of the british empire merrington was known as a detective in every capital in europe and because of his wide knowledge of european criminals had more than once acted as the bodyguard of royalty on continental tours and had received from royal hands the diamond pin which now adorned the spotted silk tie encircling his fat purple neck the famous detective's outlook on life was cynical and coarse the cynicism was the natural outcome of his profession the coarseness was his heritage by birth as his sensual mouth blubber lips thick nose and bull neck attested it was a strange freak of fate which had made him the guardian of the morals of society and the upholder of law and order in a modern civilized community. By temperament and disposition, he belonged to the full-blooded type of humanity which found its best exemplars in the early Muscovite czars, and, if fate had so willed it, would have reveled in similar pursuits of vice, oppression, and torture, as fate had ironically made a police official of him he had to content himself with letting off the superfluous steam of his tremendous temperament by oppressing the criminal classes and he had performed that duty so thoroughly that before he became the travelling companion of kings, his name had been a terror to the underworld of London, who feared and detested his ferocity, his unscrupulous methods of dealing with them, and his wide knowledge of their class. He was a recognised hero of the British public, which on one occasion had presented him with a testimonial for his capture of a desperado who had been terrorising the east end of London. But Merrington disdained such tokens of popular approval. He regarded the public, which he was paid to protect, as a pack of fools. For him there were only two classes of humanity—fools and rogues. The respectable portion of the population constituted the former, and criminals the latter. He had the lowest possible opinion of humanity as a whole, and his favorite expression in professional conversation was— human nature being what it is he was still a mighty force in scotland yard although he had passed his usefulness and reached the ornamental stage of his career rarely condescending to investigate a case personally his present visit to the moat house was one of those rare occasions and was due to the action of captain stanhill the chief constable of sussex who was seated near him Captain Stanhill was a short, stout man with a round, fresh-coloured face and short, sturdy legs and arms. He wore a tweed coat of the kind known to tailors as a sporting lounge, and his little legs were encased in knickerbockers and leather gaiters, which were spattered with mud, as though he had ridden some distance that morning. He was a very different type from Superintendent Merrington, a gentleman by birth and education, a churchman, and a county magnate. He never did anything so dangerous as to think, but accepted the traditions and rules of his race and class as his safe guide through life. Like most Englishmen of his station of life, he was endowed with just sufficient intelligence to permit him to slide along his little groove of life with some measure of satisfaction to himself and pleasure to his neighbors. He was a sound judge of cattle and horses, but of human nature he knew nothing whatever, and his first act on being informed of the murder at the moat house was to ring up Scotland Yard and request it to send down one of its most trusted officials to investigate the circumstances. In reply to this call for assistance, Superintendent Merrington, not unmindful of the county standing and influence of the Herediths had decided to investigate the case himself and had brought with him two satellites a finger-print expert who was at that moment paring his own finger-nails with a pocket-knife as he stared vacantly out of the library window and an official photographer who was upstairs taking photographs in the death chamber seated near the fingerprint expert was a police official of middle age inspector Whaling of the sussex county police he was a Saturnine sort of man, with a hooked nose, a skin-like parchment, and a perfectly bald sugar-loaf head, surmounted at the top by a wen as large as a duck-egg. His deferential attitude and obsequious tone, whenever Superintendent Merrington chose to address a remark to him, indicated that he had a proper official respect for the rank and standing of that gentleman. Inspector Whaling was merely a police official— he had no personal characteristics whatever, unless a hobby for breeding Belgian rabbits, and a profound belief that Mr. Lloyd George was the greatest statesman the world had ever seen, could be said to constitute a temperament. The fifth man was Detective Caldew, who had just completed a narrative of the events of the previous night for the benefit of his colleagues, but more especially for Superintendent Merrington, "'in whose hands lay the power of directing the investigations of the crime. "'It was by no wish of Detective Caldew "'that Superintendent Merrington had been brought into the case. "'Caldew thought when the county inspector arrived "'and found a Scotland Yard man at work, "'he would be only too glad to allow him to go on with the case, "'and he anticipated no difficulty in obtaining the consent "'of his official superiors at Scotland Yard "'to continuing the investigations he had commenced.' But Inspector Whaling, when notified of the crime by Sergeant Lum, had telephoned to the chief constable for instructions. The latter, distrustful of the ability of the county police to bring such an atrocious murderer to justice, had begged the help of Scotland Yard, with the result that Superintendent Merrington and his assistants appeared at the moat house in the early morning before the astonished eyes of Caldew— who was taking a walk in the moat house garden after a night of fruitless investigations. In the arrival of Merrington, Caldew saw all his fine hopes of promotion dashed to the ground. He was by no means confident that Merrington would permit him to take any further share in the investigations, but he was quite certain that if he did, and the murderer was captured through their joint efforts, very little of the credit would fall to his share when such a famous detective as Merrington was connected with the case. "'Marrington would see to that. "'Caldew, in his narration of the facts of the murder, "'laid emphasis on the mysterious nature of the crime "'in the hope that Marrington might deem it wiser "'to return to London and leave him in charge of the case, "'rather than risk a failure "'which would greatly damage his own reputation. "'Marrington listened to him gloomily. "'He fully realized the difficult task ahead of the police, "'and his temper was not improved in consequence.' "'Apparently the murderer got clean away without leaving a trace behind him,' he said. "'Yes.' "'No sign of any weapon?' "'No.' "'Anything taken?' "'No. Miss Heredith says nothing was taken from the room, and nothing is missing from the house.' "'The motive was not robbery, then,' remarked Captain Stanhill. "'It may have been,' responded Merrington. "'Caldew says the first intimation of the crime was the murdered woman screaming. "'The scream was followed in a few seconds by the revolver shot. "'If she screamed when she saw the murderer enter her room, "'he may well have feared interruption and in capture and bolted without stealing anything.' "'Why did he murder her then in that case?' asked Captain Stanhill. "'To prevent subsequent identification. "'Many burglars proceed to murder for that reason.' "'I know plenty of old hands who would commit half a dozen murders "'rather than face the prospect of five years' imprisonment. "'I do not say that burglary was the motive in this case, "'but we must not lose sight of the possibility.' "'It seems a strange case,' murmured Inspector Wailing absently. "'He was thinking as he spoke of his rabbits, "'and wondering whether his wife would remember "'to give the lop-eared doe with the litter "'a little milk in the course of the morning.' "'It's a very sad case,' said Captain Stanhill.' poor young thing the chief constable was a human being before he was a police official and his face showed plainly that he was stricken with horror by the story of the crime it's a damned remarkable case exclaimed merrington in his booming voice i do not remember its parallel an english lady is murdered in her home with a crowd of people sitting at dinner in the room underneath and the murderer gets clean away without leaving a trace no weapon, no fingerprints or footprints, and no clue of any kind. Caldew had been hoping to get an opportunity of telling Merrington privately about the missing trinket, but he realized that he was not doing his duty by delaying the explanation. There was something which might have helped us as a clue, he said. Last night, while I was examining Mrs. Heredith's bedroom, I saw a small trinket lying on the floor near the bedside. "'What sort of a trinket?' asked Merrington a small bar brooch where is it i do not know replied caldew awkwardly i left it where i saw it hidden in the carpet thinking it possible that the person who had lost it might return in search of it but while i was downstairs it disappeared it is rather strange said merrington thoughtfully i am not inclined to think there is anything in it to help us he added after a moment's consideration still i will look into it later "'Why did you leave the trinket in the room, Caldew?' "'I thought it possible that if the owner had anything to do with the crime, "'he or she might return for it,' said Caldew. "'So I left it where I found it "'and watched the room from the end of the passage. "'A murderer doesn't go about wearing a cheap trinket, "'and if he did he wouldn't risk his neck coming back to look for it. "'The brooch was more likely dropped by one of the maidservants "'who picked it up again. "'Would a girl go into a room where there was a dead body?' "'A country wench would. "'English countrywomen have pretty strong nerves. "'You ought to know that. "'But why did you leave the room "'if you expected the owner of the trinket "'to return in search of it?' "'I was called downstairs to see Mr. Musard. "'An unused outside door, which is generally kept locked, "'was discovered unlocked by the butler "'before the murder was committed. "'As the door opens on a staircase leading to the left wing, "'Mr. Musard thought the butler's discovery "'had some bearing on the crime.' "'He thought the murderer may have entered the house that way? Such a theory would suggest that one of the servants is implicated.' "'Yes, but I do not agree with Mr. Musard. "'What is your own opinion? I think the key must have been left in the door by one of the servants, perhaps some days ago. The fact that the butler locked the door when he found it unfastened did not prevent the murder being committed or the murderer escaping afterwards.' The murderer may have entered the door by the house before the butler discovered that it had been unlocked, and then concealed himself inside the house, awaiting an opportunity to commit the crime. In that case he would have tried to escape the same way, but it is quite certain that he did not do so mr massard says that the staircase was the first place to be searched when the guests rushed upstairs if the murderer had gone that way he would have found the door at the bottom locked and the key removed and he must have been caught before he could get back upstairs there's something in that said merrington but how do you account for the door being unlocked in the first instance the servants know where the key is kept "'One of the maids may have taken it to steal out of the house that way "'to keep an appointment with a sweetheart "'and forgotten all about it when she returned. "'The back staircase and entrance are never used by the members of the household, "'and the key, which was inside the door, "'may have been there for days without being noticed. Tufnell admits that it was only by chance he tried the door yesterday. "'He had not tried it for weeks before. "'I'll have a look at this door later, "'and now we had better get to work.' "'We've got to catch this murderer pretty quickly, or the press and the public will be up in arms. He's had too long a start already. You must make up your mind for considerable public indignation about that, Caldew.' "'I do not see how I can be held responsible for the murderer getting away,' said Caldew, in an aggrieved tone. He had his start before I arrived. I did everything that I could—' I searched the house inside and out, and Sergeant Lum has been scouring the countryside since daybreak looking for suspicious characters. "'I am not blaming you, Caldew,' responded Merrington, but his voice suggested the reverse of his words. "'I am merely pointing out to you the way the British public will look at it. They will say, here is a young wife murdered in the bosom of her home and family, and the murderer gets right away. What do we pay the detective force for? To let murderers escape?' mark my words, if we don't lay our hands on this chap quickly, we'll have the whole of the London press howling at our heels like a pack of wolves. Half a dozen special reporters travelled down in the train with me and pestered me with questions all the way. They're coming along here later for a statement for the evening editions. But never mind the journalists. Let us get to work without further loss of time. Have you made a list of all the guests who have been stopping in the house? Not yet." "'Here is a sketch-plan of the moat-house interior and the grounds, which you may find useful. "'Thanks. You had better prepare a list of the guests before they leave. "'They are sure to get away as fast as possible, and we may want to interview some of them later on. "'Now we had better have a look at the body.' "'They went upstairs to the bedroom. "'There they found a young man with a freckled face and a snub nose, packing up a photographic apparatus.' He was the photographer, and he had been taking photographs of the dead body. Finished? inquired Merrington. That's right. Then you and Freeling had better return to London by the next train. You'll be wanted in that Putney case. The photographer and the fingerprint expert left the room together, and Merrington walked across to the bed. He drew away the sheet which covered the dead girl, and bent over the body, examining it closely but without touching it. "'The corpse has not been moved, I suppose,' he remarked to Caldew, who was standing beside him. "'Not since I arrived. But she may not have been shot in that position. She lived some minutes afterwards, and may have moved slightly. Not much, I should say, for there are no marks of blood-stains on any other part of the bed.' Merrington nodded. He was looking at the bullet wound, which was plainly visible through a burnt orifice in the rest gown which the dead girl was wearing. THE WOUND WAS A CIRCULAR PUNCTURED HOLE IN THE LEFT BREAST, LESS THAN THE SIZE OF A SIXPENNY PIECE. THE WOUND HAS BEEN WASHED, HE OBSERVED. WAS THAT DONE BY THE POLICE SURGEON? THE POLICE SURGEON HAS NOT BEEN HERE. THE CORPSE WAS EXAMINED BY THE VILLAGE MEDICAL MAN, DR. HOLMES. I SHOULD LIKE TO SEE HIM. WHERE IS HE TO BE FOUND? HE WILL BE HERE IN THE COURSE OF THE MORNING. HE IS ATTENDING YOUNG Heredith, WHO IS SUFFERING FROM THE SHOCK. THE DOCTOR FEARS BRAIN-FEVER. When he comes, I want to see him. It is idle speculating about the cause of death in the absence of a doctor. Death in this case appears to have been due to hemorrhage. Apparently the murderer aimed at the heart and missed it, and the shot went through the lungs. The shot was fired at very close range, too. Look how the wrapper is burnt. Any sign of the bullet, Caldew? I found none. Well, we shall have to wait for the doctor to clear up these points." his trained eyes swept round the bedroom, taking stock of every article in it. He next carefully examined the door and the lock on it. The door was open when the others came upstairs, you said, Caldew? Yes, about half open. That accounts for the scream and the shot being heard so plainly downstairs. It also suggests that the murderer fled very hurriedly, leaving the door open behind him. It seems to me more likely that he escaped by the window, even if he did not enter that way. Miss Heredith, who was the last inmate of the household to see Mrs. Heredith alive, thinks that the window was closed when she was in the room before dinner. Merrington walked over to the window and examined it, testing the lock and looking at the sill. Does Miss Heredith say that the window was locked or merely closed when she was in the room, he asked. She cannot say definitely. She thinks it was closed because the air was heavy, and she knew that Mrs. Heredith disliked having her bedroom window open. Merrington shrugged his shoulders contemptuously. "'A woman's fancies are not much to build a theory upon,' he said. "'Have you any other reason for thinking that the murderer may have escaped by this window?' "'Yes. After the shot was fired, the guests rushed upstairs immediately, and the murderer would have run into them if he had attempted to escape downstairs.' "'Is there no other means of escape from the wing except by the staircase?' "'There is the back staircase I told you of at the end of the corridor. That staircase is never used. The door is kept locked, and the key hangs in a room downstairs. It was the door at the bottom of this staircase, which was found unlocked by the butler yesterday evening. "'I'll have a look at it, and then we'll go downstairs. I want to see this bedroom window from outside.' they left the bedroom and proceeded to the end of the corridor where caldew pointed out the door at the top of the staircase merrington opened it and went down the stairs he reappeared after the lapse of a few minutes with dusty hands and cobwebs on his clothes the murderer didn't get in that way he said on the face of it it seems a plausible theory to suggest that he entered by the locked door and hid himself somewhere in this wing "'and escaped after committing the murder by jumping through the bedroom window. "'But it is impossible to get over your point that if he had entered by the door "'he would have tried to escape by the same means, "'not knowing that the door had been locked in the meantime. "'To do that he must have traversed the corridor twice "'and gone down and up these back stairs "'while the guests were coming up the other stairs. "'He couldn't have done it in the time. "'He would have been caught, cut off before he could get back.' LOOK AT THIS STEEP FLIGHT OF STAIRS AND THE LENGTH OF THE CORRIDOR. THAT DISPOSES OF THE INCIDENT OF THE DOOR. WHOEVER UNLOCKED IT WAS NOT THE MURDERER. MERRINGTON RETRACED HIS STEPS ALONG THE CORRIDOR. AS HE WALKED, HIS EYES ROVED RESTLESSLY OVER THE TAPESTRY HANGINGS AND VELVET CURTAINS, AND TOOK IN THE DARK NOOKS AND CORNERS WHICH ABOUND IN OLD ENGLISH COUNTRY HOUSES. "'Plenty of places where a man might hide,' he muttered in a dissatisfied voice. At the head of the front staircase he paused and looked over the balusters, as though calculating the distance to the hall beneath. Then he descended the stairs. It still wanted half an hour to breakfast time. There was no sign of anybody stirring downstairs except a fresh-faced maid-servant who was dusting the furniture in the great hall. She glanced nervously at the groups of police officials and then resumed her dusting. Merrington strode across to her. What is your name, my dear? he asked in his great voice. Millie Saker, sir. Very well, Millie. I'll come and have a talk with you presently, just our two selves. The girl, far from looking delighted at this prospect, backed away with a frightened face. Merrington strode on through the open front door and turned towards the left wing. It was a crisp autumn morning. The early sunshine fell on the hectic flush of decay in the foliage of the woods, but a thin wisp of vapour still lingered across the moat house garden and the quiet fields beyond. Merrington kept on until he reached the large windows of the dining-room, which opened on to the terraced garden. "'That's Mrs. Heredith's window,' he said, pointing up to it. "'Her bedroom is directly over the dining-room.' If the murderer escaped by the window, he must have dropped onto this gravel path. It is a pretty stiff drop, said Captain Stanhill, measuring the distance with his eye. Oh, I don't know, replied Merrington. He'd he let himself down eight feet with extended arms, and that would leave a drop of only ten feet or thereabouts. Not much for an athletic man. But if he dropped, he must have left footprints. There are none. I have looked, said Caldew. The information did not deter Merrington from examining the path anew. He got down on his hands and knees to scrutinize the gravel and the grass plot more thoroughly. "'Nothing doing here either,' he said as he scrambled to his feet. "'There are neither footprints nor marks such as one would expect to find if a man had dropped out of the window. "'What are you looking at, Wailing? In reply, Inspector Wailing made his first and only contribution towards the elucidation of the crime." "'Could not the murderer have climbed up to the bedroom by that creeper?' he asked, pointing to a thin trail of Virginia creeper which stretched up the wall almost as high as the window. Merrington tested the frail creeper with his great hand. His sharp tug detached a mass of the plant from the brickwork. "'Not likely,' he replied. "'It might bear the weight of a boy or a slender girl, but not of a man. "'What do you think, Caldew?' Caldew nodded without speaking. Weyling's remark had started a train of thought in his mind, but he had no intention of revealing it to a man who plainly did not intend to confer with him on equal terms, or disclose his own theory of the murder, if he had formed one. "'Let us get inside again,' said Merrington, in his masterful way. He turned back towards the house, and the others followed. End of chapter 7